This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. And you're listening to the DCAU Review, hosted by Cal and Liam, streaming at DCAUreview.com and on your favorite podcast app. Happy Halloween. It's an absurd holiday. Oh, yes. Putting on costumes and striking fear. Quite absurd. Halloween in Gotham is the perfect time for revenge. What's happened? Johnny Beatty was murdered tonight. And only the Dark Knight <laughs> can unmask the killer. Nice outfit, Bats. Batman, the long Halloween. Trick or treat. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 183 of the DCAU Review. I am one of your hosts, Cal, and with me, my good friend, good brother, and the man that runs our Twitter page, it is Liam. Liam, welcome to episode 183, also known as a very exciting conclusion to last week's review. Uh, First time we've done that in the history of the DCAU Review. That's right. It was a... The movie was released in two parts, though I do believe there will be a complete edition coming sometime in 2022. But as it stands now, since they were released as separate movies, we reviewed them as separate movies. And because the episode would have been three hours long if we had to review them, <laughs> both those parts in one episode. Um, so, yeah, we, we for our own sake and for uh, for the format in which it was released, we uh, we are bringing you part two of our review of the Batman the Long Halloween animated movie. And this week we are reviewing part two of said adaptation. That is right. And uh, if you're interested in hearing all our thoughts on the original graphic novel in which this is based, uh, where the comic series was actually 13 comics, I believe, in the original series, but it's been collected as a graphic novel over and over and over again, uh, we invite you to Join us. I don't know why you would be listening to the part two before you listen to part one, unless you're just one of those sickos that likes <laughs> like, likes to know the end of the movie before the beginning of it or how we get there. But uh, if you're interested in hearing thoughts on that, especially Liam, uh, as we mentioned last week's episode, is a huge fan of this particular comic book and storyline. So uh, interested to discuss with you today, Liam, uh, how the how it differs, uh, the plot veers off. There were some things that we liked or that that specifically that you liked that maybe deviated a little bit from the plot last week. Uh, and I know that there are a few things with the movie that ultimately deviate a little bit more this week. So Looking forward to discussing that with you. Before we get into our four categories this week, though, uh, let's go ahead and get our official IMDb synopsis. And for the movie, The Batman The Long Halloween Part 2, which was released direct-to-video for streaming also on the wonderful HBO Max app uh, here in the States on July the 27th, 2021, meaning, yep, we're just a few months old here at this point for this movie. That's right. And this is, uh, of course, the synopsis for Batman The Long Halloween Part 2, which was written by Tim Sheridan, directed by Chris Palmer, with music by Michael Gatt, and animation by, I believe it's Edge Animation Co. for this part as well. And that synopsis reads as such. The killer known as Holiday continues to stalk the Falcone crime family, while a new class of costume criminals rises in Gotham. Batman suspects that a former ally might be the serial killer. All right, that, that, that's okay. I feel like it's a little wordy. Um, 
you know, and I take some issue with the idea that the, the the costume criminals are just now arriving because it's pretty established that he's already met all of them because they're all in Arkham. <laughs> Valid point. So maybe he's fought them all one time each, but that's still, uh, I guess this, and that is something that um, as we can get into our plot here, uh, that is something that is, that was sort of what the point of the graphic novel was. It was taking Falcone and Maroney and some of those characters from the Batman year one Frank Miller story and kind of doing a story that bridges the gap where we go away from the mobsters and the sort of the the unsuper criminals and and sort of the moment when that shift officially happens and I do think that the the movie here does does sort of play into that certainly with its finale uh that that is sort of the idea is that yes these criminals have existed but now they've they've really seized the the top of the mountain Right. You have the, the criminally insane are the biggest threats at this point, And the, the older generation is sort of dying off. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you mentioned, sort of the, uh, the, the, the crime organization here, but we, we pick up uh, Liam where we kind of left off with our post credit scene, which was Bruce Wayne being introduced to poison Ivy as a vine sort of began uh, running up his arm. And we learned that, uh, well, uh, for the the first three months of this uh, movie's holidays, uh, that being Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, and Mother's Day or April Fool's, I forget. April, April yeah. Fool's Day. So this April is Fool's. okay. Yeah, this this is sort of the first part of the 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 book series that gets very condensed here, as each month, of course, got its own issue. Whereas they they kind of just do a quick montage of just to establish that Poison Ivy is in control of Bruce Wayne and that she's, uh, while controlling him, is getting him to turn over various assets and funding to the Falcone crime empire, which is, as is, was established in part one, is sort of on its last legs and is sort of desperate to find uh, any kind of uh, financial help as well as, uh, as we see here. And the other side effect here is that uh, Falcone is beginning to work with these these super criminals to sort of keep himself afloat and keep himself alive. Yeah, uh, that's that's one of the big things that we that we learn that is sort of out of character for him. As uh, later on in the movie, we're introduced to to his daughter also, and uh, we'll talk about her in just a moment. But uh, mainly, uh, the first little p- portion here, as you mentioned, is Poison Ivy has has. Uh, again been manipulating bruce and having him turn over all a lot of control of his various assets over to the falcone family and uh is only actually foiled and stopped the plan as uh as she has begun to literally take over wayne manor you know it's overgrown and plants have infested uh, wayne manor itself but really only comes to an end thanks to selena kyle aka catwoman You've been a good boy. The foundation was such a burden to you, to us, just like the rest of the company. You know what you have to do so we can be together. You've overfed your philodendron. Okay. 
I don't know why it took her three months to figure out unless she just had hurt feelings that Bruce all of a sudden was <laughs> gal palling around with Pamela Isley in in public. I don't know. Uh, I think but- that I think there's a line about how she had to like wait until she could approach when Ivy was distracted or something, but they do have some kind of line to explain it, but it's just a throwaway line. Yeah. It's a throwaway line that didn't make any sense to me. It's like, what does that mean? What do you mean? She had to be distracted. What is, <laughs> what does that mean? But yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you're all right. They did say that. Uh, so she, she invades and, and rescues Bruce and Alfred from the clutches of, of a poison ivy. There's a little fight that happens between them and she's able to successfully free Bruce from poison ivy. And he quickly there discovers that he's uh, turned over a lot of assets over three months to, uh, and, and lost three months of his life. How did you know? Well, you haven't exactly been discreet, appearing with ivy in public and signing assets over to the Roman. I'll wake the lawyers, sir. Police will be here any minute. Tell them everything you remember and then get to bed. You look awful. I told you I don't want a partner. You sure wanted one these past three months. Three months? Took a while to catch the jolly green Jezebel with her guard down. And Holiday? Still at large. Uh, in the meantime, uh, it's things are getting bad, bad, bad for one Harvey Dent. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think, arguably something that the, I think that the film does better that we talked about last week here is that it really, we, and in similar, in similar fashion to the animated series, it's showing uh, Harvey's sort of descent into madness, his descent into psychosis, um, kind of at, at the at the same time, uh, or, or before he becomes uh, before he's physically scarred. Um, and I think I think that's that sort of becomes a, a very important plot point later in the movie, as as we sort of see this relationship between his him and his wife uh, deteriorate more and more, and. And he's just, uh, he's really in a bad way. And he doesn't, uh, and, it, and it just seems to keep getting worse. As, uh, and uh, to counter, and in the in the meantime, we also, of course, we jump to another couple of holidays. We've got Mother's Day, which features the, uh, a very, almost ripped right out of the pages uh, sequence of uh, Batman being exposed to fear toxin and having these terrible hallucinations of his mother and ending up in Crime Alley. Although the the way it happens is a little bit different in that he's still, Batman in that scene, whereas in the in the book they uh, he had switched back into uh, things, uh... Who helped you escape? Give me a name, or I.
is is just going going to the place where he last saw his mother basically and has to be rescued again by selena kyle mm-hmm. that woman uh yeah i i it was interesting that for the very for like half of this movie batman gets his ass handed to him a lot <laughs> uh by villains uh it's you know it's he's being mind controlled by poison ivy and then he gets exposed to fear toxin and has this hallucination uh, where he ends up in crime alley or the spot where his parents uh, were murdered as you mentioned and uh you know has to be saved by selena uh later on in the movie there's an interaction between the scarecrow and batman again where he gets defeated by the mad hatter and gets knocked unconscious uh mm-hmm. so he's he's really I, I don't know if this is this is technically supposed to be i guess you know we talked about last uh last week's episode that this was still i guess early on in batman's career because we know that he has, he's not full-blown detective yet he talks mm-hmm. a lot about having to refine his detective skills so in some ways it, it i guess it plays into that he's not the expert uh he's he's definitely not the expert combatant or he's he hasn't seen or isn't isn't expecting some of the the things that these uh villains choose to do and uh and ways that they can manipulate him that uh that you would maybe as a grizzled veteran batman but yeah in the meantime there's there's more victims that are murdered and then uh after mother's day uh we have uh what what turns out to be uh, so the Maroney family is meeting on Father's Day, and uh, and the father, I guess it's Luigi Ramoni, uh, mm-hmm. who we learn uh, was responsible at one point for bringing Thomas Wayne into sort of this pseudo relationship with the Falcone family because uh, 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 Carmine's father brought. Carmine to Thomas Wayne in order to have an emergency operation on him after being shot up by the Maroney family, which is kind of where this rivalry between the two families uh, really, really kicked off. I mean, it was already, it already existed, but it was, became personal at that point. And at that point sort of brought the Waynes into the, the Falcone uh, Maroney rivalry. He shouldn't be here. It's okay. Do you know who my father is? The Roman? (coughs) Smart kid. So you know who I'm gonna be? The Roman. Very smart. You remind me of my boy. Your pop saved my life. Guess that makes us family. It fell out of your pocket. My insurance policy. There's a lot of bad people out there. Criminals. And everybody knows criminals are superstitious. Sometimes all it takes to get out of a bad situation is a good flip of the coin. It didn't work for you tonight. (laughs) 
Yeah. Still, two heads are better than one. No? Keep it, kid. All we get is all we take. And Bruce even has a has a line where he mentions that uh, after helping Carmine and uh, having the surgery done in less than a couple of weeks, uh, the Waynes were murdered in an alley. So seemingly connecting uh, that the 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 Maronis were responsible in some way, or the organized crime certainly was mm-hmm. was responsible for Thomas and Martha's deaths. But uh, at, at this time, uh, Luigi's actually assassinated in front of Sal Maroni. And there's a uh, there's you know, there's a chase that happens as he sees Holiday chases down after him. And uh, one of the last things that Luigi Maroni told Sal was that he needed to make peace with his enemy. So the very next scene that we get after he's unsuccessful, Sal Maroni's unsuccessful in tracking down the uh the the holiday killer he decides to go visit harvey dent himself in the office and uh decides that his father must have not been talking about making peace with the falcones but instead making peace with the police and the law so he's gonna flip on the uh and give up information to implicate the falcone family in order to uh to stave off the the police from uh his his him up himself and his own men so we we get this setup sort of where harvey is going to be able to finally catch the falcones and really uh really put the screws to them in in the legal sense and uh that's where we kind of get one of the the I guess pinnacle moments of the movie and uh, ultimately the, the, the transformation from Harvey to, to Two-Face. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty dramatic and they, they don't do, I don't think as good a job of establishing it in the movie as they did in the book. And some of that could be, uh, you know, chalked up to time, but uh, is that the reason that Maroney flips in the book is, and we do see them together briefly, but is that he is in a relationship with, uh, Falcone's daughter Sophia mm-hmm. and specifically it's mentioned that she went to prison for 10 years to protect Maroni mm-hmm. and and so they have this sort of you know the, the Romeo and Juliet type romances between the these two warring mob families and she is sort of a, as he's about to to turn state's evidence she sort of goes to see him in in jail and and convinces him to uh, to take another tactic, so to speak, which it, it's kind of under. They do, like I said, uh, Sophia is there when when Maroni's father is killed, but it isn't really uh, made clear, uh, or at least I didn't necessarily. And maybe that's part of the twist, I guess. But that I didn't necessarily see that coming, as they without including that scene of of them really making it clear that he's gonna flip back the other way. It was. Uh, when he when he just pulls out the pulls out the acid and throws it in Harvey's face, it's it's pretty dramatic and I think a little bit unexpected. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, it is right out of a you know the original Two Face origin, something that we really hadn't seen done on screen. To my, I guess they did it in Batman Forever. Yeah, I guess Batman you, Forever is the only you see Tommy Lee Jones and for some reason Batman's in the courtroom. <laughs> that movie- Batman was on jury duty. That day. <laughs> Oh, classic. But anyway, um, but yes, we do get the, the classic two-faced origin of the, the mobster uh, throwing the acid into his face. And now he is uh, physically as scarred as he is uh, 
as he is uh, mentally. And now, Mr. Maroney, may I remind you that your immunity is contingent upon your truthful testimony during these proceedings. And I told you the truth. Falcone's clean as a whistle. <laughs> Sal, what are you doing? What I'm told. Okay. Um, Your Honor, in light of the witnesses' <laughs> change of heart, I need to request a continuance. Continuance? Uh, what is that? Like a, a holiday? What? <sighs> you know, like Father's Day. Luigi Moroni sends his regards. That sort of coincides with uh, Falcone's sister, Carla, has, has been accusing Dent of, of being the killer on, on cable news. We get a very sort of Dark Knight Return style, you know, cable news pundit, uh, you know, news yell show where, where Falcone's sister is, uh, is accusing Dent. And then, of course, she turns up dead. And uh, at the same time, uh, Dent is, after escaping a few, uh, few of Falcone's hitmen, ends up down in the sewers where he happens to run into somebody we saw briefly in part one, that of course being Solomon Grundy. And uh, we get, which is something that was pretty much right out of the, uh, out of the comic book as they sort of come to this understanding as they've both sort of died and been reborn in some strange way. Born on a Monday, as he keeps saying. Um, yeah, you know, Gotham hospitals should have thought twice about putting Dent in a room with a window after what <laughs> the last time he escaped custody, uh, put you know under police watch. Man, just terrible, terrible Gotham Gotham hospital security happening around there. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, he escapes to the sewer, and as you mentioned, he's um, you know all signs at this point are pointing it's very clear that things they want you to believe that Two-Face is, Harvey is holiday. Um, you know, he, even in some ways, his dialogue, his inner dialogue that we see as he sort of begins to flip, um, you know, it, mentally before the acid attack starts to lead you to believe that he is holiday um, there's a scene right before that where uh, Falcone had sent a, a hitman to provoke Harvey, not to kill him, but to provoke him. And he sort of blacks out and then wakes up again in the sewers and with a gun, with a holiday killer's mm -hmm. gun there and blood, literal blood on his hands, the, the, the hitman that had been sent after him dead. Uh, and him running away, you know, to escape. All the meantime, Batman has begun to put things together and uh, actually finds Holiday Killer guns uh, and the baby bottle nipples in the basement of the dense house, uh, along with an Oxford pennant, which um, which is interesting because he he didn't what Batman wasn't aware that Harvey went to Oxford and even asks Jim Gordon if Harvey went to Oxford and interesting because jim mentions that no in fact harvey was a was a gotham u boy that no he didn't he didn't go to to oxford but he does mention that there is somebody else uh that did go to to oxford and that was alberto falcone 
which is interesting and a, a little mm-hmm. bit of a breadcrumb to lead you on later on when we figure out uh, just who Holiday is. But yeah, as as Harvey and uh, and Solomon Grundy sort of team up, they uh, attack this convoy that we find out is a, a trap set. Uh, they were transporting Sal Maroney, uh, and uh, the convoy is attacked by Harvey. And this seemingly Harvey's going to get his revenge and kill Maroney at this point, just before he can. Uh, and by the way, we also learned that the coin that Bruce Wayne gave Harvey to flip in part one to decide whether or not to burn the money, not only does it have only two heads it's two it's a double-sided headed coin uh but it also originated from uh carmine falcone also it was carmine falcone's coin that Mm -hmm. uh, he ended up giving bruce the night that thomas wayne operated on him so bruce was responsible for giving that as batman to harvey and now harvey is using it throughout the movie talking about realizing that uh you know he Every, every time he calls it, he said it can only be heads. Heads you win. You know, he, he always calls it out that way. So it's, it's, it's interesting that we kind of learned that. We didn't quite know that in part one that I know of. So, um, But mm-hmm. now he's made, of course, the classic Two-Face X over one of the heads to decide uh, the fate of Maroney. And before he can decide the fate of Maroney, Maroney's actually shot and killed from, of course, the holiday killer who is up in the up in the window and uh batman and, and jim gordon believe this to be intentional to try and draw heat away from harvey dent from being the killer harvey is very careful to make sure that he protects batman or the holiday killer from from batman uh chasing after them and ultimately is is uh led away and taken uh or escapes no he escapes then doesn't he mm-hmm. and uh, he and solomon grundy end up escaping in that moment so uh, that kind of sets us up for our final, our final, uh, you know, final quarter of the movie here as uh, we, we kind of get this culmination between Falcone, who is meeting with his, uh, with his daughter, Sophia, who has expressed interest in being a part of the family, but he's been resistant to, but he slowly decided uh, to maybe let her into the family. And at the, at that point, uh, they start to notice that uh, there's multiple explosions across the city happening, uh, and it appears that uh, Harvey has decided to break out the criminals uh, from from Arkham City to begin to wreak havoc. And we get we get uh, more Scarecrow and Mad Hatter, Poison Ivy, and of course the Joker. Uh, running amok also with the penguin who was previously not seen before <laughs> before in any part of the movie so uh, i think you see it. him in a cell in part one is he okay all right well, we, one of the, the cells in arkham okay, you at okay. least see the nameplate i don't know if you see him or not well there, he if he does then he returns but we didn't get <laughs> much he didn't play too big of a part enough to ha- even have a, a speaking role uh that we know of in part one though so it's interesting that he he pops out there and that kind of leads us to our final battle here is the the uh the the villains are running amok and uh and leading to this sort of culmination of all at uh, the falcone mansion yeah and it's it's sort it's sort of contrasted as you talked about with uh you know as as Falcone is starting to maybe warm to the idea of, of his daughter and, you know, Catwoman has throughout both part one and part two shown some sort of clear interest in the Falcone family beyond trying to rob them. And, and she's been very cagey with telling Batman what it is. And 
we sort of finally figure it out right before those explosions start going off as she reveals that, uh, which is, is, which is a, a reveal that happened in the comics, though it didn't happen in the Long Halloween specifically, um, uh, which was that Falcone is her father um, and that she doesn't know her mother's name and that really all she wants from him, she doesn't want to be part of the family. She doesn't want really anything from him, but just to learn her mother's name. And so as, as Batman and Catwoman sort of, uh, sort of begin to gel together more as, a, as an actual team, as less of a, you know, less of just this sort of flirting fancy and pulling each other out of the fire and actually begin to work together, that sort of coincides with, uh, with all of these explosions. And, and yes, the, the super criminals of Gotham City, all of them except for Calendar Man, because he didn't get the coin flip right. <laughs> Uh, which uh, I don't think they ever expressly say that. that that scene is right out of the comic as well of, of all of the cells are empty except for calendar man. And I, I don't know if, if they ever expressly say it's because he got the coin flip wrong or not, but it's a, that's a really great bit there. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they have sort of this final assault. It's, it's big, it's dramatic. You have poison Ivy and penguin and Joker and two face and, and Batman and Catwoman all sort of facing off with, you know, the, the mobsters and, and Falcone's daughter, who I think is way more of a physical presence in the book as well. Like she doesn't get as much to do in this movie. She's a little bit hard done by it. And again, I think a lot of that could be chalked up to time and, and, and runtime and things like that. But uh, yeah, but they're, they're all sort of mixed up together. And, and as uh, as sort of as the, as it begins to wind down, Two-Face kills Carmine Falcone and, uh, and that's sort of, and then voluntarily gives himself up to Gordon and Batman. So we have this, this sad moment as Falcone's dying, he, uh, and Two-Face begins to get away. Uh, Batman and, and Falcone and, and, our, and uh, Catwoman are, are speaking and, and he looks at Catwoman with her mask off and, and says the name of her mother. And, and so she, she does get what she wanted from him ultimately before he passes. And uh, also something straight out of the comic is that as her father is shot, uh, Sophia Falcone goes in, a, goes into a rage and ends up tumbling out of a window and just really just smacking, smacking hard on a car about 30 stories below. Two bullets only. Sorry, gorgeous. very tragic and and dramatic end for the Falcone family and as it seems that Two-Face has got away despite Batman and Catwoman stopping all of the other villains uh, we see the bat signal is lit up yet again and in fact Gordon and Batman go to the rooftop and they see Two-Face who has agreed to turn himself in as all his work is done for now at least. Yeah, we get this interesting conversation where uh, Batman, you know, with all the death that happened and Batman really reflects with Gordon and Dent or Two-Face, Dent is dead at this point, they say, and with Two-Face over whether or not 
the with the agreement that they made between the three of them the pact was it worth it was it with all the death all the murder all that happened in the meantime what happened to dent we kind of get this what essentially was used for the dark knight you know a a big basis for the dark knight which was was Mm -hmm. was all of this worth it you know was the death and 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 Gordon says unequivocally, yes, yes, it was worth it. The good guys won. And, um, you know, I think, I think Batman is left more to wonder and maybe not so sure based on what happened with his friend, Harvey, you know, based on the number of deaths that happened, the the blood Mm -hmm. that still was running in the streets of Gotham. Um, but there is this interesting scene as or interesting line as Falcone is dying in Batman's arms where Batman sort of reveals to him that he's Bruce Wayne because he, um, he, he repeats this line that Falcone said to him uh, the night that, uh, that Thomas Wayne saved his life. Batman repeats it back to him and uh, he asks Batman directly, do you still believe and that cuts back to, you know, that goes back to the first mm-hmm. line uh, delivered in the movie and in the comic book, which is Bruce Wayne saying, I believe in Gotham City. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Batman says, yes, he does. So it, it's interesting. You have this sort of a dual dichotomy here of whether it was worth it. Batman still believes that in Gotham City, but was this plan, this pact between the three of them was it worth it is, is an interesting question. And uh, ultimately we kind of get this nice little feel good moment at the end where it's once again, Halloween night. And just like the beginning of the movie, Alfred is preparing for trick or treaters and Bruce is sort of chastising him once again, saying that there's no way that they're going to get trick or treaters that Gotham isn't ready for it yet. And wouldn't you know it, a single family uh, rings the doorbell and Alfred is gleeful enough to give uh, the, the child a bunch of candy and Selena mentions, and she's there with Bruce mentions that she's uh, happy to see him proven wrong. And that's kind of where we, uh, where we end things, except <laughs> right before then we have this touching, this interesting scene that uh, we talked about before we went on the air was not really in the movie, well, in the book originally, and that is where we get the origin of the holiday killer. Because on the roof, when Two Face uh, flashes the signal, he uh, says that he's responsible for all of the holiday killings, and uh, that he must face justice for them. And uh, but Batman isn't so sure, and we we flash to this scene. Uh, with Batman standing uh, behind the real holiday killer. Yeah, and uh, we can get into the the variations on the book in just a second. But yeah, as as it stands, we we get the the full story, and and there were allusions to it a little bit in part one, uh, right before Alberto Falcone is killed by the holiday killer. He speaks about how he had been in love once and he was ready to, to leave it all behind and start a family, but that his father wouldn't allow him to. And that it, it, and that uh, his father did something terrible to this woman. It's, it's implied at the time, obviously that he had her killed or, or something, but uh, we come to find out that uh, that Oxford pin was not, uh, was not Alberto Falcone's. It was in fact Gilda's and that she had studied there and that, she was in fact the woman that had fallen in love with Alberto Falcone and it, they, what, they weren't just in love, that she had become pregnant and that uh, Alberto was, was very willing to be a father and, and a husband to her, but that it, was, it, was, it would have been a scandal 
for the uh, for the Roman to have a grandchild out of wedlock, and that it was uh, that it just could not happen that way, and that for for those reasons, Alberto sort of stood by as uh, as his father uh, not only uh, got Gilda out of the family, but um, uh, took the baby uh, uh, from her womb, ripped it from her womb, and that is uh, sort of implied to be the reason why she is not able to conceive with Harvey, which is, has been a, a, is a recurring theme throughout their sort of deteriorating relationship in, uh, in both parts one and part two. Um, and so we, we do get the full reveal real here that it was not Harvey, nor was it uh, Alberto or, or anyone else that was uh, perhaps thought of by Batman to potentially be the killer. But in fact, it is Gilda. And as far as we know, Gilda alone was responsible for all of the shootings of the holiday killer. And, and she, uh, she sort of explains the whole story to Batman and why she did what she did and that she has no regrets. And, and Batman is sort of, uh, you know, listens to her story and, and then uh, decides not to do anything about it. <laughs> so... Are you going to take me away or just stand there in judgment? I need to know that Holiday is done. Not done. Finished. I wonder, how long did he know about me? Is that how you figured it out? Did Harvey tip you off? He didn't give you up. Not knowingly. But after Maroney was killed, the way he protected Holiday, he must have known then. He was my friend. He believed in me. I should have saved him. What will you do now? Tell Gordon? He turns, uh, yeah, he literally turns his back and says that he needs to, he said, she asks him basically what he's going to do. And he says that he needs to know whether or not Holiday is dead. And she says, no, not dead, finished. Um, which, and he just sort of walks off with his back to her. So, yeah, it's very interesting, which I guess leads us to, uh, I guess we can start talking about our scores here for this. And, it, you know, we talked about it in part one. We liked part one a lot, but as far as judging it as its own movie, it's hard to do because of the way that it was ended. So I specifically said that I would judge part two a little bit more harshly based on, you know, based on whether or not it, mm -hmm. it, it fits to make its own sort of uh, encapsulated single movie, or if it's relied on this being a whole thing, uh, then I would have to, you know, I can't retroactively change my score for part one. So this, you know, my plot score might be a little bit more harsh for this. So I did not like that specifically. And I know that's a very big deviation from the book. Uh, as, as we mentioned, the, the book, it was not solely Gilda that was the holiday or the holiday killer, was it? Correct. So in the book, and they, they sort of condense this uh, into a couple different action sequences, but the sequence where uh, Batman is dressed up as the prison guard or the, or the, the cop and, and reveals that he's there as, to save Maroney from being, from being shot 
in the book, that was the reveal of the seemingly the, the full reveal of the holiday killer being Alberto Falcone having faked his own death and, uh, and become, and uh, so that he could more anonymously uh, continue to kill uh, these various uh, mobsters and, and people that had, he felt had wronged him or wronged his family or wronged the city. And, uh, and then it, it sort of as a secondary reveal is, is that Harvey also killed at least some, some of the, the people as well and that it wasn't just Alberto Falcone. Uh, but that once the holiday killer had had sprung up, sort of uh, that uh, that Dent had also sort of donned it, and, that, and that's part of the the story in the book. I think is that it's such a a simple disguise, right? It's it's a hat and a overcoat and these guns and that are you know are are pretty easy to buy and with all with their you know their uh, register number filed off on them. So there, so the idea is that it could be it could be anyone that had access to, you know, $50 to buy the hat and the coat, basically. Right. And, and so the idea that it turns out to be multiple people, I think really makes sense here, uh, really made sense there. But uh, yeah, they went another direction uh, <laughs> for, for the movie. And then of course the end result in the, in the book is not only were Harvey Dent and Alberto Falcone the holiday killers, but there was a third killer who was in fact Gilda. And uh, similarly to how the movie ends, we do see her burning the, the holiday outfit and, and some other evidence in her final shots. And, and, uh, and, we, and we sort of get her motivation being more in the sense that she, she wanted to sort of settle down and start a family with Harvey Dent and felt that as long as he was this crusading DA, that as long as he had this city to save, that he would never really be ready to to be part of a family with her. And, and so her motivation was sort of, uh, you know, wanting to expedite the process of, uh, of cleaning up Gotham city. But uh, yeah, they, they went, a, they went a very different direction for, for this finale, uh, which, which I feel like this is two different conversations because one you've, you know, changed and sort of streamlined that who the killer reveal is, but then also you have the added point of in the book, Batman, never finds out that Gilda was was a holiday killer or was one of the holiday killers. Whereas here he does figure it out by the end of the movie and he still lets her go, um, which seems uncharacteristic. I mean, I, I know this is a different Batman. It's, we don't maybe know everything about this version of Batman and what his view on, on the law and, and justice is is but um you know most batman have a rule about killing and cold-blooded murder um not all but a lot of <laughs> batman uh across across the multiverse seem to have a problem with that so the idea that he would just let her walk at the end i thought was i i just didn't it didn't feel right like it didn't feel right to me exactly yeah that's that was exactly what my feeling was it's the the main issue that people have had with let's just let's just call a spade a spade the Zack Snyder Batman was that he was so willingly to use you know the Batmobile had guns the Batmobile was killing people right and left you know he was he was kill it he was a killer like that was the whole basis sort of for the the Batman v Superman movie was the Batman had turned into this 
menacing killer that was unafraid to sort of cross that line. Um, you know, we've seen we've seen different versions of that. Even you know, you've pointed out several times on on the podcast here that one of the things that you didn't necessarily care for in an otherwise pretty great movie in Batman Begins was that Batman doesn't out and out kill Rachel Ghoul in that movie or mm-hmm. Ra's al Ghul or whatever you want to call him. Uh, <laughs> but he does choose to let him die. Uh, so is there, there's a gray area there. He's like, why is that not very similar? Yes. You're not pulling the trigger, but if you don't, if you know that this person's going to die, if you don't save them, are you guilty by association at that point? But this in a very, very similar way to me, if Batman at all compromises that need for justice, like that's his motivation mm-hmm. uh, going all the way back to his own parents being killed. His parents killer was not brought to justice in most universes and most multiverses. That was the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And he's seeking, seeking justice on their behalf. That's the oath he swore to them with that. He would mm-hmm. seek justice on their behalf for the rest of the Gotham city, wherever he possibly could. And that's his driving factor. Mm-hmm. Where is the justice for the Falcone family or the Maronis or all of these people that were killed, all of this blood. If you just let Gilda walk, if, if she is not held accountable, even if she's done, even if the ho- even if the holiday killer is finished, where is the accountability for her for ending so many lives? Yeah, I think it just, it, yeah, it didn't sit right with me. And I, and I should clarify in the, in the book, uh, Gilda is the first, is the original holiday killer. And then both Alberto and Harvey are sort of copycats that follow her lead across, uh, in, the, in the story. So the fact that she would turn out to be the ultimate holiday killer is still pretty faithful to the book. And I think if you take out the Alberto coming back to life thing and you take out Harvey actually being responsible, I think that's okay. Um, as far as like streamlining it for a comic, I like the, the triple reveal. I think that's fun, but that's, there's also a, a part where the reason that Two-Face confesses to those kill, to all of the holiday killings is theoretically to protect Gilda because, right. uh, there, and there is a moment that was in the book and it's recreated in the movie where he's sort of sitting in the cell and he just says her name. And the idea being that he's aware that she was the killer Right. But that he chose to, you know, to take the rap there and for for whatever killings Falcone, Alberto Falcone didn't uh, didn't confess to. So you t- you sort of take that you sort of also take that away from from the two face confessing to the crimes or admitting to being the holiday uh, the holiday killers. That the whole thing is oh he wasn't he was trying to protect his wife who he had sort of figured out was responsible. And in the end, he does protect her and uh, Batman and, and Gordon never find out. Whereas here, it's like that. Again, I just keep coming back to you. I think there's, you're still, you could have done this and eliminated Alberto and Dent being the killer and have the reveal being that she's the parent. But I just, yeah, I did not care for the idea of Batman going, well, she had a real good reason to murder, you know, eight people or whatever it was <laughs> over the more than that, I guess there's one for every holiday. So um, even if they were, and even if they were bad people, um, I just, yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't really buy that as like a, a Batman 
a Batman thing. And again, it's a new Batman. They're allowed to tell unique stories and, and maybe this will, will come back and they'll, maybe they'll, there will be a dark victory uh, animated movie someday, which is the, the follow-up sequel comic to this story. Um, but as of now, I found that ending uh, quite, quite lackluster. I mean, I liked the bit at, at the very end at the Wayne Manor where the trick-or-treaters come up and we get this notion that maybe, maybe Gotham is turning around and maybe there is a little bit of hope thanks to Batman and, and Batman's kind of found, a, a Bruce has sort of found a little bit of peace in this sort of makeshift family he has now with, with Alfred and then with, with Selena and him, you know, becoming sort of officially a couple by the end of the movie there. So I, I do like, I do like that part of it, but yeah, there's, there's just something that didn't sit right with me of, of Batman just letting, letting her walk, or at least not. I also think it would maybe be one thing if Gordon was there too, and like Gordon refused to right. arrest her. Right. And then it's sort of, they, as a, they, as this duo, maybe in deference to this pact they made with Harvey, are going to let and Gordon's going to let his wife walk and there's some conflict there but ultimately they agree Batman and him agree to it but the fact that Batman knows the real identity of the holiday killer and just doesn't doesn't share that with anyone and just lets her walk yeah it wasn't I didn't love that agree yeah that that heavily weighed on the score for me you know I think uh, the rest of the movie, it's a, it's a good tale. I mean, you kind of know where things are going because if you know any Batman lore at all, you know that Harvey Dent doesn't say Harvey Dent. They've already, you know, we, the cover of the movie is Two-Face. So we knew there was going to be a transformation at some point physically to it. Um, I kind of wish they had done some foreshadowing a little bit with the, with the Two-Face voice in part one, maybe that would have felt like a little less rushed and abrupt because it mm -hmm. is a very quick descent into madness that we get from him. Um, so that fe felt a little bit rushed. This does, and we talked about it in, in part one, part one was really only four of the 13 issues. And so this, this part two had a, a huge, uh, load to carry here as far as you know condensing nine issues of a comic book into into uh you know a 70 minute movie or whatever it is so a uh yeah definitely a herculean task and maybe one that mm, they they could have maybe cut out some of the stuff in in part one and and made it flow a little bit better and that way this didn't feel quite as rushed i there are things to like here i think overall it's a it's a good batman story but it just that that whole decision to to change that and make this a Batman choice to let her walk did not sit right with me. So for all those reasons, and as I said, I have I have to have to judge this a little bit more harshly than I did part one based on uh, this being part two. Uh, I ended up giving plot a five out of ten. Yeah, I went I went one point higher. I went six out of ten. Um, I think on its own, it's it's still pretty good, and it's still feels like a pretty cohesive definitive ending um obviously as we've just talked about for a while here we've had issues with the some of the characterization and uh and some of the uh yes some of the condensed storytelling there's a there's an entire issue with the riddler in it that just uh, no, no appearance here which again I, I as i keep saying i understand that this was this was already a a two-part movie and you had to you had to cut some stuff and that that issue while it's fun is not particularly uh 
uh, important to the to the overall plot. Uh, I also think they lose a little bit of the the Father's Day uh, story in the book. It's you know it it does lay out sort of similarly as as Bruce is having this uh, you know is having this flashback to his father saving Falcone's life, but it, it sort of leaves to Bruce having this sort of breakdown where he he sort of has to wonder if if his father hadn't saved Falcone's life that night, would it have you know, would everything be different? And, mm-hmm. and Alfred tells him that it's, it, Alfred tells him it's no different than him wondering if what would have happened if he had been a different father to Bruce. Mm. Um, and so it's this moment where the, you know, the fathers and the sons are all sort of having this, this what if thought and, you know, Bruce, Bruce being frustrated and then sort of has this, this kind of genuine tearful breakdown as he, you know, he tells Alfred that he that he misses his father, and it's it's a really really sweet moment that I wish they could have found time to fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, as we'll get to in visuals, you got to have some action, and you got to have some you got to have him punch the Mad Hatter some. So, um, which I <laughs> I wouldn't have wanted to miss. That is a fun sequence. As we'll get to in visuals in a second here, but yeah, overall, I think it's it's fine. I, I think, but there's definitely just some big things, especially in that final act that just feel like, ah, without, if you're not going to do that, then you kind of have to do it this way and doing it the way they did. It just didn't feel totally satisfactory. And, and I guess we should mention in, in the final thing in plot here, there's a credit scene where flash and green arrow show up and say hi. So <laughs> um, that was definitely not in the book. Yes. 100% not in the book. Um, this is, I think, based off of the Justice Society World War II movie. Um, Barry Allen's Flash is the star of that film, and uh, at, at the end, he and the he and Superman. Spoiler alert for that one if you haven't seen it. But he and the, and Superman team up, and and they discuss what what if you know what if we got a whole bunch of us together. So uh, the Flash and Green Arrow, I guess, are are showing up to recruit Batman into what will be this movie shared universe justice league or whatever but yeah that was a really really random t- uh tack on at the end of of what has what for the most part felt very self-contained there really weren't any allusions to uh to the wider dc world other than in the the kind of art style there you go speaking of art style might as well parlay that into our discussion on visuals and animation liam uh, as you mentioned uh, Edge Animation, once again, responsible for part two, as it was in part one. Uh, we discussed heavily our appreciation, our enjoyment of the art style in last week's episode. So if you, again, if you've not listened to that, we don't know why you're listening to this week's episode first, uh, but if you care to hear our uh, our whole breakdown of the art style, uh, you can definitely tune back into last week's episode. So uh, saving some time here, Liam, uh, more continued uh of the same animation styles so uh, more of the same here for this we do get some new new character models at least brought in here we get uh, we get to see two-face for the first time so we get to see him in this art style but uh, mainly just the same people that we've seen before with the exception of the introduction of a couple new villains also we get uh, poison ivy as poison ivy for the first time we saw her in the trench coat pamela isley look at the end of the movie last week uh, this week we get her uh, in full Poison Ivy uh, persona. We also, as you mentioned, we get the Mad Hatter. 
uh, and uh, looking a, a little bit more traditionally like he does in the uh, Alice in Wonderland tale. And then we also get the Scarecrow. And uh, actually, the, I guess that's where I'll, I'll kick things off with the visuals because the Scarecrow leads us to a very interesting sequence. As you mentioned, there's a, uh, a scene where he first interacts with Batman and he uh, Batman gets stabbed with a syringe full of fear toxin, which is definitely something you wouldn't have seen on <laughs> Saturday morning back in the uh, back in the early 90s. I don't think that would have passed standards and practices at that point. So Batman getting stabbed in the ribs with a syringe uh, injecting himself or being injected at that point with a fear toxin leads to this shift where as the the scarecrow is escaping on horseback, by the way, uh, was that in the book? Was he was he riding a horse in the book? He was, in fact. Yes. There you go. Well, also, well, then then uh, Christopher Nolan's love or uh, appreciation of <laughs> of uh, Batman Long Halloween li- lives on as he was also, of course, writing that in uh, in Batman Begins as well. So very, very interesting. Oh, very good. Uh, so, yeah, as he's escaping on horseback, we get this sort of nightmare sequence where Batman's fear toxin sort of shifts. And I thought it was interesting because we we change art styles in a very dramatic way. We go from the art style that we've been used to for the majority and, and see for the majority of the movie, almost to something that to me reminded me a little bit more of a Kelly Jones, red rain style mm-hmm. art. I don't know if you got the same vibes or not from that scene. Yeah. I think, I think they were definitely trying to crib that style and maybe more of maybe the, the idea was they could make it look a little bit more like, uh, Tim Solly's style as far as like the proportions of people's bodies and you know the and the the shapes uh, mouth shapes and something like that but yeah there's definitely a little bit more I think Kelly Jones in in it than uh but definitely that sort of that sort of very uh sort of more abstract and and uh and uh and wild style than uh than the rest of the movie is but yeah it is I think definitely one of the standout sequences it's sort of it's more sort of seen to me like uh like fear toxin is is like a it's a, it makes you trip like it's more it's of a, a hallucinogen yeah yeah which i i feel like and i and you see that in in the animated series and several other versions of scarecrow where you know people will pop up you know there's the the memorable dream sequence that he has where the you know the gun you know the alley turns into the gun and then he sees all of the villains and everything so it's not like we haven't seen hallucinations before but just the idea of him being sort of stuck in that world whereas there he sort of sees the hallucination and he's sort of able to shake it off in the animated series whereas here it's like this this waking nightmare where you're really not sure if he knows where he is or who he is or i mean there's that that's part of it is why he ends up you know he ends up going to to crime alley because it's it's mother's day and he's having these flashes of his mother and he's trying to protect her and he's of course also seeing the scarecrow and and uh, you know has this very this very dramatic breakdown in front of this this family, not unlike his own family in Crime Alley, who are leaving leaving the movie theater and and see him sort of having this uh, this terrible episode, and and then he and Catwoman sort of finds him, and and he's, he's sort of calling out to his mother repeatedly, and and she's able to get him home. But it is it that is probably the standout sequence here. There's. There's other action beats, both for for Catwoman, you know, Catwoman and Dent facing off with the assassin on the on the pier on uh, on the Fourth of July at one point, and then uh, of course the the finale there is you 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 also have Batman fighting uh, fighting the Mad Hatter and Scarecrow in the graveyard, which is a which is a pretty fun sequence as well. Catwoman's there for that as well, um, 
and uh, and then of course you have the the big finale where all of the villains team up and that's that's a that's a lot of fun it's always fun when you get a bunch of those gotham rogues together and and batman just gets to punch all of them like that's a that's a pretty fun sequence near near the end there especially as it as it sort of escalates as it starts it's the villains versus the falcone uh you know mobsters and then as the villains sort of begin to take over and then batman and catwoman bust in and have to go toe-to-toe with joker and poison ivy and penguin and and two-face ultimately i think that's a really fun and and, and action-packed sequence as well yeah, that was that was one the 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 prelude to that as we have Sophia sort of coming out down and doing her best Tony Montana impersonation from the top of the <laughs> uh, top of the steps there, and there's this sort of all out gun battle that happens between her with these two gigantic machine guns standing on the top of the set of steps and uh, shooting at the villains as they're all sort of there. Was, I thought that was that was a definitely had to be a Scarface homage uh, more than likely there, but. Uh, yeah, I think most of the action Catwoman gets a lot of action in this movie and, uh, you know, the opening sequence where she kind of saves Bruce from, from poison Ivy is an interesting one too, because we get a lot of this plant interaction, a lot of plant and, and vines and, and leaves and, uh, attacking her and her trying to avoid them and escape them and sort of doing battle with poison Ivy. Um, I thought that was, uh, that was a standout one, uh, definitely the scarecrow. I, I do think that you know, this is the first time, and as you mentioned in animation, that we see this this original comic origin of Two Face. And even though you kind of know what's coming, like you definitely know as as uh, Maroni pulls out the the little bottle, uh, as as Harvey's having this sort of mental breakdown in the midst of the the courtroom, and as Maroni has decided he's not going to flip on Falcone, you know what's coming if you're a Batman fan. You know that this is the moment where you know, uh, Maroney is going to throw this acid. This bottle is not water. It's acid. He's going to throw it in his face. And this is uh, ultimately where, where Two-Face or Harvey is likely to become Two-Face. Uh, but also, I guess part of you was sort of like, ah, we're not sure because there was a couple of other fake out moments where you thought that, you know, Harvey was going to transition into Two-Face in part one, where he has this horrible accident. You're assuming that, <clears throat> that his, you know, his face is going to be horribly scarred and it ends up not being. So um, I guess there was maybe some doubt there, but I did appreciate mm-hmm. that sequence. That was a very interesting sequence. It was very, there's a lot of tension that built up into it as he's having this mental breakdown and hearing all these people laughing at him. And, you know, he's hearing the two-faced voice in his head the whole time. And then when Maroney finally throws the acid in his face, it's, you know, it's very climactic, you know, a very uh, exciting climax to that, that, uh, that scene. So, yeah. And then of course, I, I think the uh, you know the the initial drop uh, that Batman there's a scene where Batman drops some smoke bombs in the room I guess that's when they first enter to fight the criminals and uh, you know they're they're sort of knocking out various various criminals and Catwoman mm-hmm. and him are fighting in the midst of the smoke so you kind of see them dust, jumping in and out of the smoke and um, you know he grabs he grabs Scarecrow's hand right as he's about to shoot fear gas into Catwoman's face and like breaks his hand and pulls the glove off and you know i thought that was pretty neat uh but but yeah there's there's more action in this part two i think than there was in part one but i still Mm -hmm. feel like the action sequences are very 
quick. They're very, they're very specific. They're very limited because there is so much story being told or, you know, that has to be told that it almost feels like there isn't time for action sequences, if that makes sense. Um, you know, we get a little bit of action for the, the scene where, where Solomon Grundy and, and Two-Face attack the, you know, the, the police escort as they're mm -hmm. transporting Maroney. And that's a very quick scene. We get, you know, Solomon Grundy throws the, the police car. We get a very sort of Batman, uh, the Dark Knight-esque shot of the, you know, the police van flipped upside down and Gordon looking out as, you know, as he sees Two-Face has arrived there. And, um, you know, we get a quick action beat there and then it's the tension building of who's going to kill Maroney. And then there's a little bit of a chase and, and that's it. And then we got to jump to the next sequence. So the action sequences seem to be packed pretty full. I feel like there's a lot that happens. There's like shaky mm -hmm. cam that happens. There's a lot of uh, f punches to the face, a lot of violent fisticuffs, but they seem to almost be there to just break up the monotony of the, of the conversation and the moving the story forward. So it's almost just like the, the action beats are used as, uh, mini breaks as and and less like the actual focus of the of the movie which i don't think is a bad thing um when you're telling a story that's you know it tends to be more like like a movie as opposed to you know a child's cartoon where it has to have action beats uh as the main focus yeah i think that's a good way to see it um yeah we can we can start to get into to our scores here i think i think the action beats that are there are good uh, for the most part, I don't know that there's anything where I was super, super stunned by it. I, like I said, I do think the, the scarecrow sequence is pretty standout. I do really like the, um, the Catwoman poison Ivy fight at the beginning of the movie. I think that's, that's pretty cool and, and pretty atmospheric. And, and this version of poison Ivy sort of similarly to, uh, to the, the Tim sale, uh, Tim Sally, uh, artistry, although not quite as horror movie ish, she sort of seems to be part of the vines in in this and that they're sort of an extension of her or she's an extension of them and uh so like when when the vines are cut it seems to physically hurt her or we see that in the in the final scene as well in that first scene and and then just the the moment which is pretty much ripped straight out of the uh the book which is where Catwoman rips Bruce's shirt open and he's just covered in these vines and she just you know pulls the claws out and just slices all of them slices him free of uh of the of the uh influence of the vines i think that's that's pretty cool and that's that's sort of taken straight from the comic so i do think there's good things here i i like the designs of most of the villain i like the the mad hatter design and the and the scarecrow design as well i think it's like a, a pretty unique take on the on the mad hatter i don't think we've seen a version like like that at least not in, in an animation that i've watched Mm -hmm. um, where he where he is this as you said he's very much right out of the Alice in Wonderland storybook where he's you know this wee little guy who speaks in rhymes and stuff like that he's a it's a very uh, it's a very strange strange characterization but it fits it fits very much with with this sort of eclectic Batman rogues gallery that we see so there is I think some pretty good stuff in there and and I like that final bit enough so I ended up giving visuals a seven out of ten. Uh, well, what do you know about that? Uh, yeah, I gave it the, the same exact score. I also gave it a seven out of 10. And um, I think that the, the scarecrow sequence is the standout one. I think that that's the one that I'll remember the most also because it leads into, you know, a, a visualization of 
this Batman's parents being murdered. We get an inter- interesting shot that isn't all that different than a very famous uh, year one Batman year one cover where uh, he's sort of sitting there mm-hmm. in a spotlight with his parents dead next to him. A very famous cover. Yeah. The, uh, the art style of one uh, David Mazzuccelli, um, who of course was the illustrator on, on the, uh, the year one book with, with Frank Miller. Yeah. That's the sort of the, of the first issue of that, that year one storyline is is the the very iconic symbol of sort of young Bruce in the spotlight with his you know the bodies of his parents laying next to him. Yeah, so that that gave me some of those vibes. So, um, yeah, I, I think there are some good things here. I think there are some some fun sequences, but again, I think the whole point of this movie was to be written more like an actual movie that you would go to see. So it's very much more story driven than it is action driven. And the action is sort of there to break up uh, just some of the mundane uh, and just to make sure that it doesn't drag on. So uh, the focus really isn't on the length or the brutality at times of the, the fights as it is just that, Hey, Batman has to punch some people. So uh, this is because it's, he's Batman. So let's, let's do some punching and, and have him have him fight some of these uh, super criminals. So, yeah, some uh, still, still good scores though, from both of us and, and certainly uh, looking forward to seeing what, what comes next in this uh, animation style going forward. Absolutely. All right, Liam, let's move on to our next category, which again is going to be music as was in first uh, in our first part. Michael Gatt is once again responsible for the music in part two. As we mentioned last week, a lot of uh, the, the music tends to be because this is written like a feature movie it is it is more in the background i will say i noticed that this at least uh for part of the movie it seemed like that there was more it's not quite dubstep but it has like that that inception sound horn thing <laughs> uh feature Everyone is down, yeah you know uh, you know that's you know what you know the sound that i'm talking about mm-hmm. the inception horn um you know, so there was a lot of that featured in at least early on in, in the music. And that that seems to be the basis of a lot of the music, uh, especially as, as any time that the holiday killer was was seen or, you know, it's more dramatic moments in the movie or they're chasing the holiday or, you know, whatever. So there's a lot of that and a lot of background music and sort of just just as last week, I, I don't have anything bad to say about it. There wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't anything that was offensive. I, I kind of wish there was more of a Batman theme. You know, I always wish I always want there to be more mm-hmm. thematic. Here's your hero themes. Um, you know, that's 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 what we love. It's what we're used mm-hmm. to when it comes to the DCAU. But um, for all those reasons, you know, it's it's decent. It's good. I did notice it a little bit more this week with the with the sound effects or with those specific sounds. So I'd gave it a one tick higher than I did last week. I gave it a six out of ten. Ah, very nice. Yeah, I gave it a I gave it a five out of ten. So same scores last week. Yeah. I, I uh, didn't notice anything wrong with it, but yeah, there isn't really a moment where it felt like the music stuck out. And then that, that very well could be by design as it is such as, as we've talked about a very dialogue and then plot driven movie. So yeah, there are, there aren't necessarily as many mu- moments for the, the music to shine. So, but yeah, nothing, nothing wrong with it. I, I like sort of the, the more atmospheric moments as, as Batman sort of tripping out during the fear toxin sequence. I think there's some standout stuff there, but yeah, overall a a solid job, nothing wrong with it, but nothing particularly spectacular either. 
There we go. Actually, and I just checked. I actually gave it a six last week, too. So it's the same exact score for me, too. There you go. (laughs) Keep it simple. All right, Liam, let's move on to our final category of the day, which is going to be voice acting. Now, we covered a lot of the actors that Mm -hmm. are featured in this week's and last week's. Uh, Some variations, I think, that we should probably talk about here and a couple, of course, new uh, characters were introduced so we can talk about their performances as we talk about this week's voice actors. Yes, uh, I'll, I'll do them a little bit more rapid fire since we went into depth on a lot of them. We'll obviously talk about the, the stars of the piece a little bit more here. But uh, but uh, yeah, we once again have uh, briefly David Das Malkian as, uh, as the Calendar Man. We have Billy Burke as Gordon. We have Titus Welliver as Carmine Falcone. Uh, we have Alistair Duncan as Alfred. Uh, very, very briefly have Troy Baker as the Joker. I think he only has one line in the... Uh, hey, the- our wishes came true. Remember, we were like, <laughs> last week you we were speculating, maybe he's not going to be in a whole bunch in the second part. And you were like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, he wasn't in much of it. He was in, a, he was in it about as much as the Joker is in uh, that final issue as well. So that, that works out just fine. Uh, uh, new to the cast, we have, uh, we have Layla Burzins as Sophia Falcone. We have uh, Robin Atkin Downs, uh, another veteran voice actor as the Scarecrow. And we, of course, have a man we've talked about numerous times on this show, John DiMaggio, uh, playing Mad Hatter, who, as mentioned, is just this really quirky. He's got like this really cockney British accent and he's just speaking in rhymes all the time. And he's this weird, super short little man. And he's just <laughs> and and the best part is probably when he's trying to do a rhyme about Batman and then Batman cuts him off and just punches him right in the face. <laughs> the walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose, the walrus said, that they could get it clear? Uh, I doubt it. Delivering him wasn't part of the deal. So we can do whatever we want with him. (laughs) What fun. Twinkle, twinkle, little bat. How I wonder what your... Your business with the Roman ends tonight yes it is a that is a very fun moment and uh yeah probably the highlight of his appearance he's i mean he's meant to be an annoying he's clearly he's meant to be an annoying character um the deep cockney british accent caught me off guard i will say that i you know it reminded me kind of the first time that i heard uh the penguin's voice in the batman arkham game it's mm-hmm. like wow that's weird i never thought of this character as being british but okay i guess it works he can be british that's fine um and i i know jervis tetch in batman the animated series had a bit of a like accent like he has a bit of a i guess it could be a british accent but it's definitely a more refined british accent compared to this like cockney 
like Bert in Mary Poppins chimney sweep type of accent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very much Dick Van Dyke uh, in, in Mary Poppins. Is, is that, that, that's, that seems to be maybe some of the inspiration there. But yeah, definitely a memorable performance, if nothing else there from uh, For sure. Maggio. But then, yes, uh, finishing up our returning voice cast from last week, we once again have uh, Julie Nathanson as Gilda Dent, um, who gets a bit more to do, obviously, in this part, because we we get the reveal that she is, in fact, the killer. Um, Everything she says is kind of in the same tone of voice, which I think, and I think part of that is by design, because the idea is, you know, she's this cold she has become because of what happened to her at the hands of the falcone family she's this very cold and and sort of vengeful and angry and sort of almost emotionless or or with very little emotion uh a person at this point and and other than the only thing that's really left in her is sort of this rage and and want for vengeance and so i don't i don't think she does a bad job by any means but i i I do think it's like it you don't get like the big turn where she reveals herself and she you know descends into this dramatic villain soliloquy and really really hams it up like she pretty much plays it the same way and and i assume that was by design with uh, i believe wes gleason did the uh the voice direction on this um, I assume that was by design, but yeah, she, there isn't like a big dramatic twist once we once we sort of learn that she's uh, once that she's the killer, or even even when Batman when they have that first scene where she and uh, and Batman are speaking at at Harvey's house once Harvey goes missing. Yeah, I I I appreciate it. I think that it's I think it's right for the character. She's sort of this emotionally dissociated person that's had this extremely traumatic experience where the mm-hmm. man that she loved and uh, wanted to be with, was willing to be with her. They were going to have a child. And then not only was the marriage forcibly ended, was told that she could not be with this person, but then her baby was ripped out of her. Uh, I, you know, if, if I can't, I can't even imagine how somebody would be functioning as a human being, uh, let alone, you know, be the wife of an extremely public figure and, and, and expected to sort of act in a normal way, unless you were able to completely dissociate yourself. Like that's, that, that makes a lot of sense to me for the character itself. Um, So the fact that she is sort of just one note throughout is actually, I think works, works in her favor. and, And I would assume was done done so on purpose you know it also doesn't it draws suspicion away from her being the ultimate the the villain in the end um you know this sort of meek uh emotionally hurt certainly we get allusions to her not being able to have children um in the first part but you assume that maybe that's why she's so emotionally withdrawn um, and mm-hmm. not that she's this murderous, murderous person that's been, you know, uh, knocking off members of the Falcone Empire and, and Maroni Fo- Empire at that, mm-hmm. at that point, uh, you know, one by one. So, yeah, I, I think it was a good, good casting choice and a, and a good uh, direction, voice direction uh, to kind of keep it that one note version of a, of a person that's uh, just emotionally withdrawn because, uh, yeah, she's a killer. She has kind of has to be emotionally withdrawn. 
Yeah, agreed. I think she, I think she does a really great job there. And then uh, sort of rounding out the cast here, we once again have Josh Dumal, Las Vegas' own Josh Dumal <laughs> as Harvey Dent. <laughs> Uh, not, we, not the Mandalorians. However, we did get somebody else. We get Katie Sackhoff, who played Bo-Katan on the Mandalorian. Uh, it, it, listeners may not, may, and she ends up playing Poison Ivy in this, uh, in the long mm-hmm. Halloween. So uh, I actually cut it out last week, but I confused Josh, Josh Demel with Timothy <laughs> Olyphant, uh and uh, claimed that Josh Demel had played Cobb Vanth in the Mandalorian. So this week we get somebody that was in the Mandalorian. So imagine that. But yes, yeah, Josh, Josh Duhamel, Josh Duhamel's uh, Harvey Dent, and ultimately the best Richard Mall impression that I've heard in quite some time. <laughs> yeah, at least since uh, Bruce Tim voiced him in uh, in the Justice League versus <laughs> Fatal Five cameo. But yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, that, I think yeah, he's doing he's doing the Two Face voice, right? He's doing uh, it. It's it doesn't even it almost doesn't even sound like the the same person. So uh, you know, unlike. And I, and I think that shows the sort of the different types of uh, perhaps neurological disorders that he and his wife are portrayed to have in this movie, where she has become sort of cold and emotionless as a result of her trauma, whereas he has become more, you know, more, I mean, literally he split down the middle, but this, this vengeful, angry, loud, you know, psychopathic personality has really taken hold in his brain and, and is sort of the dominant personality now. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a, tremendous transformation into that and again yes he sounds like a lot of other two-face actors before him he's not necessarily breaking new ground in that regard but as far as a transformation from from the harvey voice to the two-face voice it's tremendous yeah it's great yeah he he really pulls it off and i i wasn't so sure because i felt like his harvey dent was okay last week um, you know, he delivers lines pretty well. I like him as an actor, as I mentioned last week, you know, his, his mm-hmm. time in the Transformer movies is one of the, <laughs> I don't know, he's not asked a lot to do in those Transformer movies as nobody was, but uh, I thought he was fine in the Transformer movies. But, you know, he's, uh, he, this, I think, solidifies him as he's a great Two-Face. He's, he got it. Like he understood, he understood what was asked. He understood the role of that, that sort of switch that's flipped especially I think when you begin, he begins to hear the voice, the two-faced voice in his head. And he's having this conversation between, you know, Harvey and the two-faced personality, you begin to get, get the true dynamic between the two voices that he does. And it's, it's great. I think it's, I think it's really, really good. Agreed. And then, and then, yeah, sort of wrapping up our, uh, our voice cast, we do in fact have uh, Naya Rivera as Catwoman once again, as we, as we spoke about at length last week. Um, she tragically passed away in in 2020 and um, will uh, you know not be able to reprise this role which uh, as we talked about last week and again uh, you know being a voice of in a cartoon is the least of the the, the tragic elements of, of, a, of a woman passing away especially a young young woman that was uh, was a mother it's uh, it's absolutely terrible um, but uh, since we are talking about her in the context of this cartoon I'll just say it's it's also um, a, a real bummer because I think she's a really good Catwoman. I think she and and Jensen Eccles Batman again. We've talked about that how their relationship and them sort of growing together in, is so much of the you know the backbone or the emotional backbone uh, of Batman's story arc in this in this film and 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 those two working off of each other. I think they both did a great job. 
No, I, I think they have a great chemistry between them. It was also great. She also gets a, a lot of focus on this uh, in this movie. And, you know, we get the storyline again where she's attempting to sort of uh, find her identity and uh, discover more about her past and, you know, what her motivation is here. And she's a great ally to Bruce. Uh, Bruce is sort of reluctant uh, to, again, to partner up with anybody at this point. And, you know, she she is sort of, relentless and doesn't take that personally so uh i i loved it yeah it's it's unfortunate again you know that she's she's passed and i i think this is a this was a, a great role for her and it was a great performance and unfortunately it was just the kickstart of a what probably would have been a very successful uh long career as a voice actress so yes very tragic that uh unfortunately we, we won't get any any more performances from her yeah, agreed. And as as mentioned, her her working with Jensen Eccles as as Batman, we have uh, discussed Jensen Eccles' uh, pros and cons as a voice voice actor quite at length between uh, last week's episode and, of course, our review of Under the Red Hood, which you can also hear in our archives at dcaureview.com. But uh, yeah, I think I think he gets the most uh, acting that he's gotten to do. I think in in a voice acting role that we've reviewed at least to date here especially i think in that uh in the fear toxin sequence as he you know he's sort of continually calling out to his mother and as sort of having this complete breakdown as he you know he's as he's sitting in crime alley and is sort of calling out to her repeatedly and uh, i think i think he does a, a a pretty good job um you know he's he's you know we've talked about this a hundred times a lot of different people have played Batman over the years and all of them sort of bring their own unique spin to it. But I feel like that scene was maybe where I started to feel like, okay, yeah, this does, this does, this, this is Batman. Like this, that, that moment, ironically, it's not when he's being grim and gritty and so serious. It's, it's that moment of that genuine vulnerability is, uh, you know, as, as is said in Return of the Joker, it's, you know, the little, the little boy in, in the bat suit crying, crying out for his mommy. Like it's, that's, that's the moment where I thought it really clicked with me uh, uh, of him playing Batman. Yeah, I think, uh, again, I think the best sequence that we get are between, um, you know, his, his, uh, his performance and his interactions, not only with Catwoman, but also uh, Alistair Duncan's Alfred. Um, we get mm -hmm. another touching moment later on where it, it's sort of, a, you know, the, the flip side of what we saw in the first, first part, uh, they're again, standing underneath the picture of Thomas and Martha Wayne and, uh, Batman's beginning to have this, this questioning of, of, you know, if, of Falcone and, and his parents' relationship with the Falcones and whether or not, um, you know, their legacy, they were so concerned with their legacy that being involved and tying themselves to the Falcone family was worth it. And Alfred really has this breakdown scene where he's like, well, you know, you are their legacy, like you're the legacy moving forward. So you kind of get to decide what that, what their legacy is. And that ultimately is what their concern was. So uh, their legacy doesn't have to be this these loose ties to the Falcone family or the fact that they allowed the Falcone, you know, that, that Thomas allowed for uh, the Falcone name to continue by helping, helping save Carmine. Um, you know, it, it, it can be what Bruce basically decides that it is. So I, I, I enjoyed that interaction. There were times actually where I felt like Jensen Eccles was really, 
uh, he had listened to some Kevin Conroy. There were some definitely some inflections <laughs> that he used uh, in some of the you know some of the scenes where he's uh, the particular the scene where he's uh, interrogating Scarecrow and uh, and the Mad Hatter. There were some inflections there that really reminded me of Kevin Conroy. And we actually get his Bruce Wayne voice too. We get him putting on like a fake Bruce Wayne voice as he's uh, sort of grilled by. Harvey Dent and and mm-hmm. uh, and Commissioner or Captain Gordon earlier in the uh, in the movie as they're trying to determine his whereabouts when uh, Falcone's son is uh, Alberto is thrown overboard. So uh, we get a we get a fake Bruce Wayne voice out of him too, which I thought was pretty fun. So yeah, I think he's really really good in this. I think that um, you know we get we get a lot of a lot of he had to carry a lot for this because it is so story driven and this whole part while it is very much a a harvey dent two-faced story uh you know we get a lot of of batman trying to put the pieces together and batman doing this detective investigative work and batman interacting with harvey and uh gilda and gordon and uh selena and and falcone you know we get all we get all of these interactions so um, you know, I, I think he had a lot to carry. It's a Batman movie. Of course he did. So um, I thought voice acting was incredibly strong for this week. Uh, I don't know if you have anybody else to talk about, but uh, I figure we can we can get into our scores here. I thought mm-hmm. voice acting was really, really strong this week. Um, continuing, I actually gave it a better score than what I gave it last week. This week, I bumped my score up to an eight out of 10 for voice acting. What about you? Nice. Yeah, I, I gave it even uh, one tick higher than that. I went nine out of 10. I think it's it's a really strong cast and they have a lot to do. And as we've talked about throughout this, it's so plot driven, so dialogue driven um, that it would be easy to feel like it's just a lot of actors doing, you know, continuous exposition dumps, but it never feels that way. And, you know, it always feels like they're doing good acting and they're doing good acting in, in service of moving the plot forward. So yeah, great job by, uh, by everybody involved. There we go. All right, Liam, well, that will bring us to our final scores for this week and uh, totaling everything up for me for this week. So for part two, I ended up with a 26 out of 40, which is a little bit disappointing. Last week's score, I ended up with a 29 out of 40. So this week, not quite as good. And that had a lot to do with that plot score coming down uh, from what I had given it last week. What about you? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm just a tick higher at uh, 27 out of 40 for, for myself here. So Also yeah, more than um, your score last week, which was also correct. 29 out of 40. Yeah, which is funny because I, you know, as much as we, I think, preferred the voice acting this week or thought that all of the, the talented actors had more to do this week, I think, yeah, I think the the plot uh, the plot kind of brought things down a little bit for us. Um, and again, like I said, I, I, I guess then we can get into our, our rewatchability here. Um, if you're a fan of the book, especially like I am, I think this is still worth seeing because they do recreate a lot of, you know, specific moments and scenes from that. And, and I think it's well done. And I think the, the voice performances are, are very, very strong in both parts, but especially in part two. And I think, it, I, think there, I think there's enough good stuff here to check out, especially if you're a fan of the book. Will I come back to this? 10 more times now that I've saw it or five more times now that I've seen it, probably not. Um, so I don't know from the, the rewatchability standpoint, I, I don't know how often I would, I would come back to this, but as, you know, as someone who loves this story and, uh, and loves that, there's definitely, I think moments from it that I could see myself revisiting, even if I'm not necessarily sitting down to watch 
both parts of it back to back anytime soon. Yeah, um, I, I, I would concur with that. I think it's worth a watch. Uh, I haven't watched a lot of the D- direct-to-video uh, DC animated movies that aren't DCAU stuff. Uh, I will admit that uh, I, I missed a lot of that uh, DC animated movie universe, uh, Tuckerverse stuff. I've not watched uh, the majority of those mm-hmm. movies. Uh, other than the ones that we've we've sort of uh, reviewed here, and I watched a little bit of the of the Reign of the Superman uh, movie as well, but um, I will say that I am excited. I'm excited about more movies within this universe. I may, uh, if we don't decide to review it for a future for a future episode, go back and re- you know review uh, some of these. Uh, some of the other the the previous two movies that we believe are now tied into this universe here with Superman Man of Tomorrow and then the Justice Society movie. Um, I'm intrigued to see what comes next. Again, if we get a Dark Victory movie um, or it seems again like they're very much setting up this Batman Catwoman romance. Are we going to get uh, you know Batman Cat Bat Cat movie uh, The Wedding? Are we going to get something that involves the Phantasm? Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the more modern stories that they've been telling, which is what the the benefit of having that dc animated movie universe exist is that they are are adapting a lot of not only some of the classic storylines but some of the newer storylines as well into movie form so very excited about that but i don't know that this is one that i'm going to go back and watch again especially since it's a two-parter it's a lot of investment to watch uh and i didn't you know there are parts of it that i just didn't didn't feel were authentically Batman. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Watchability, sure. Give it a watch if you haven't seen it yet, but rewatchability, I don't know that I would throw this one on again. It definitely wouldn't be in my my top 10 things, to, top 10 DC animated movies to rewatch, I don't think. So yeah, there's that. Yeah, fair enough. All right, Liam. Well, that will begin to wrap us up for this week. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Don't forget, you can check out our bonus episodes that we released this week covering not only Justice League Infinity, which is the continuation in comic book form written by James Tucker and J.M. DeMatteis that is continuing what would have happened after Justice League Unlimited, but also Batman the Adventures Continue, which is written by Alan Burnett and Paul Dini, best friend of the show, Monica Kubina, doing artwork for them. Um, you can hear our reviews of both of those, and that is the continuation of what would have happened after uh, the last season of the new Batman Adventures. So uh, lots of fun to be had on your podcast feeds this week from the DCAU Review. Don't forget, follow us on your favorite podcast app. Uh, give us a subscribe if it allows you to leave a review. Do so. There's lots of fun, interactive things that you can do on Spotify. If you listen to us there, we put up polls every week about whatever our discussion topic is, about our movie. We ask you some questions. Uh, you can feel free to do that if you wish to support us you can subscribe to us there leave a pot leave a podcast review on your on your app you can subscribe to the pod tower youtube page uh, that takes two seconds and not only do you get content from us but you get contact uh, content from our friends at tim talk and the watchtower database as well and you can also support us by if you want to buy some merch head over to dcaureview.com where you find our full archives but also you can get a hat shirt mug t-shirt something to support the pod there's also a link at the bottom on your favorite podcast app that says support this podcast you can do that uh shout out to uh, sam uh, who's been messaging us and supports us and comments on all our stuff and just sends us his 
money every month. Just nice dude. We're like his compassion Thank you or something like that. <laughs> Great dude. Uh, but Liam, we are in a new month of November here. We typically start with a new series once we do, uh, once we turn the calendar page, but we had this uh, two, two week break here where we wanted to do some Elseworlds talk, cover both parts of the long Halloween. But now that we are in November, we are going to head back to the DCAU proper and uh, excited to begin a new series of reviews with you. That is right. And we will be returning to the city of Dakota as we will be once again reviewing Static Shock for the rest of the month of November. Here we go. It's been a while since we've been there. Excited to head back and do some Static reviews. Static, of course, I don't think he's ever been more popular, maybe when he had his own cartoon, but uh, <laughs> that he is right now. Lots of exciting stuff happening with Milestone. Static's got his own monthly comic book back again. We're getting a Milestone animated movie coming out. Who knows? A live action Static movie is still supposedly being produced. So lots of a uh, good time to be a Static fan. So uh, excited to catch up on some of those old cartoons, Liam. But until then, I'm Cal. And I'm Liam. We'll talk to you on the next episode of the DCAU Review. Adios.